Hello? I was saying I have all this extra time and I'm still not prepared. Uh, appreciate that, Craig. I never quite know what Craig's going to do when he comes up here. So uh, that was great. And, and as he said, time is a human construct. So if this goes a little long today, you can either blame Craig or all of humanity. But just remember time's an illusion. So uh, how, how many of you guys use Instagram? Anybody here use Instagram or TikTok or anything like that? Do you, do you, do you, do you have any followers? On, who has followers? you have followers? Do you follow anyone? You follow... You follow me? Oh, man. You poor thing. <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean to follow someone on, on Instagram or TikTok? Or, or, did I hear stalking? <laughs> so, okay, there's the thing. We know it doesn't mean, you know, to follow somebody on, on Instagram doesn't mean we're following them down the street or following them to their house. I mean, I would figure a restraining order would be uh, the result of, of something like that. No, when you follow someone on Instagram, it just means that you, you know, you're somewhat interested in, in what that person posts, either pictures of or descriptions of or videos of or whatever. It means that we observe and read the content that's there, but it's really passive. I mean, you know, you may be able to leave a comment if you want to. I don't know what that means, but you, you leave a comment uh, if you want to. But by and large, that interaction is is observational. It's very passive. But if a person says they're a follower of a particular religion or philosophy, that means something more than just passively observing, doesn't it, when we say that? It means adhering to the ideologies and the principles of that religion or philosophy that it, that it represents. So it carries the idea of devotion and engagement with the mind and with actions with that particular religion or philosophy. So when we talk about people being Christians, we realize it's more than just some demographic uh, category. It's not a political sector. It's not a brand of moralism. To be identified as Christians means that we are followers of Jesus. Uh, so then the question that arises from that, to be a follower of Jesus, well, what does that mean? I mean, more importantly, what do we mean by it when we say we're going to follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to be considering today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. If you want to follow along, if you have a way of doing so, you'll want to find your way to John chapter 1, please. The first chapter of John is loaded. I mean, you know, this is our fourth week reading this. And I'm not going to apologize about that because it's, it's meant to be a section that requires that we slow down and really absorb what the author of this gospel is trying to communicate to us. The, the motive behind John's gospel, as we, we talked about before, is, is revealed at the end of the book. And the motive is to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the divine son of God, and that by believing on him, we're going to have a new and eternal life. Last week, we began the narrative proper, where we read about John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus, and we considered what we could know about Jesus from what it is that John attested to. Today, we're going to be reading the fruits of John the Baptist's witness, and we're going to uh, get John the author's insight as to what it means to believe and accept, to, to follow Jesus. Specifically, what it means to us, or what it will mean to us if we're going to follow Jesus. I can't think of a more timely message to examine as a church community. We live, 
We live in a culture right now that is both saturated with Christian perspectives and detached from them at the same time. Our faith has been corrupted with politics and culture wars and our societies, our society that we live in is in the throes of division. And in the midst of all of that, when you look at the mess that we see, in the midst of all of that, God seems to have jumped right into the middle of Gen Z as if to say, don't look at all of that. Look at me. I'm here. I love you. I care about you. And it seems like they're responding. So to me, this is a perfect time to dig into the gospel with both hands and start sorting out what it means to us as a church to follow Jesus. So if you're there in chapter uh, John chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're starting with uh, verse 35. It says, The following day, it should say that, there we go. It says, The following day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him, and he declared, Look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following I don't know how to read this next uh, thing here. There's so many different ways you could read it. What do you want? Or what do you want? Or, or what do you want? I don't know how you... What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi. And here John breaks the fourth wall because he doesn't want us to get confused. He says, Rabbi means teacher. Okay. Uh, which, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Well, come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Okay, so here we have this scene where, as John the Baptist sees the Jesus again, he tells two of his own followers, you know, disciples that he had following him, part of his ministry, that for certain, Jesus is the Lamb of God. In other words, he's the one we've been looking for. This is it. He's the anointed one. And reading this, it sounds like, as soon as they hear that, they kind of shrug and, and head off and follow Jesus. John, the author, may be compressing things here in order to make a point. The other gospels seem to indicate a little bit more time elapses in all of this. But remember, you know, John is, is doing something that doesn't make John's account less reliable, but he's using these stories for a different purpose than the other gospels were. He is using all of these. He's, he's leveraging these historic events for the purpose of revealing Jesus. So when Jesus, you know, turns around, he sees these guys following, he asks this really interesting question. He asks what they want. He doesn't say, are you, are you looking at me? Are you following me? Or he doesn't say, you know, who are you, who are you looking for? No, he seems to have a different intention in his questions. What do you want? What are you looking for? What are you seeking here? And their answer is equally as odd. It's sort of a non sequitur. They don't say, well, we're looking for you, or, you know, or we heard something about you. No, they ask, where are you staying? Which in a 21st century American conversation would make both parties seem a little bit weird or a little bit, you know, confused at least. But this isn't a 21st century conversation that we're reading here. Uh, this is an exchange made between a first century Jewish uh, group of people, more specifically between a first century Jewish rabbi and his potential Talmudim, his potential disciples. Jewish children, they were trained by rabbis at an early age. They went to what was called Hebrew school. But later on, the boys were either encouraged to take up the family trade or they could apply for a deeper study as a disciple to become a Talmudim of a, of a rabbi. And after a few years of that, in his late teens, if, if a student, you know, showed promise, 
then he would pick out a rabbi and he would ask to apply to be one of his disciples. And the rabbi would take him in and observe him for a while and see if he had what it takes to be like him. And if he did, then he'd be invited to follow him. Yes, you can be one of my disciples. So all of the language that we're reading here in this exchange between these two guys and Jesus is consciously describing what it was to become a disciple. They're asking, can, can we be your Talmudim? So where are you staying means can we stay with you uh, for you to determine if we're fit to be your follower. And Jesus doesn't tell them where he's staying. Yeah, I'm over here at the Motel 6, nothing like that. He just invites them to see for themselves, basically asking them to follow him to places unknown. And they do. And I think that that suggests something. I think that suggests that following Jesus is a process of discovery and commitment to him. Following Jesus, that's something that's an ongoing thing. Christian discipleship is about exploration. It means there's a lot of stuff that we don't know yet. I certainly can say that for myself, but we're discovering new things along the way. It's always ongoing for us. It kills me. That so many Christians feel like we have to have all the right answers and know everything as life unfolds. You'd be surprised at how many Christians, especially church leaders, are afraid of the words, I don't know. It's as if you've cursed at somebody to say that. But you're going to hear it from me a lot. In fact, over the years, if you've been here, you've definitely heard it because I will readily admit a lot I don't know. I read an article by a seminary professor who observed how many of his students would come to him after a lesson and, and kind of be like downcast and embarrassed saying, boy, I never heard any of that until I heard you teach it, expressing guilt for actually not knowing something already. And I wonder, like, how did we get to this place where we assume everything is figured out and that we're just simply in the role of, of guarding this museum of truth that's been handed to us? That's why following Jesus becomes such a drag for so many people in their thinking. Why it's considered archaic and anti-intellectual because we've bought into this faulty notion of what following Jesus is. We've lost the sense of adventure and exploration that goes along with this. Following Jesus, it's an exploration of ideas, a discovery of values and meaning. It's always ongoing, and we're always learning, and we're always encountering new perspectives as we follow him. And that is not to say that there is no such thing as immutable truth, that there is no such thing somewhere as, you know, a truth that is propositional, that's immutable, it's unchanging. Certainly, I believe that there is, but just like diamonds that flash in the sun as you get a different view of the cut angles on it, we're always perceiving new angles, even on immutable truth. To be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, means that we never stop learning and discovering and exploring. I became a believer in 1982. I have never stopped learning. I've never stopped digging into this word. It's fascinating and amazing and always surprising to me after all of these years. It's an exploration of what he said and what the implications of what he said have for my life, especially as I go through all the different phases of life that I've experienced. Also, the fact that they spent the afternoon, the whole rest of the day with Jesus is meaningful to me because whatever else they had planned for that afternoon, it was toast now. They they put everything on hold, and we know from the rest of the, st- the stories, they put everything on hold from that point on. They're just with Jesus from then on. Everything else became a secondary goal to the one of following Jesus to be like him. 
Following Jesus is about discovery, but it's also about a commitment to that. It's not a haphazard thing. And that's a challenge for us. And it hits home in terms of our priorities in life. This is what we have to start measuring our lives' decisions by. Is following Jesus way more important to me than how much money I end up making in my lifetime? Is it more important than what people think of me, even on TikTok or whatever? Is it more important than my personal comfort? Am I willing to be uncomfortable in order to commit my life to him? More important than getting my own way in life? To follow Jesus means we're committing every aspect of life to him. That is, to who he is, to what his values are, to his mission, to his personal guidance that he provides for us. And I'm not saying we ever do it well (laughs) after all these years. I don't do this well, and I'm only encouraged by the fact that neither do you. But... But it is our ongoing thing that we do. This is, this is the path we take. Usually, you know, when we talk about committing everything to Jesus and, and, and making that a priority, usually we'd prefer it to be the other way around. And too often the gospel is presented like it is the other way around, as though becoming a Christian, man, that's just the extra little thing you need to make your day that much better and your breath minty fresh and everything you need. We just want to make our plans and keep our life exactly the same and just get that Jesus stamp of approval on it. But that is not what following Jesus is. Not based on the biblical record. To follow Jesus is to be looking for him, learning from him, learning where he was so we can discover where he is and what he's doing in every aspect of life, even right now. We are discovering and then living, participating in what it is that we discover about him. Okay, well, the narrative continues here, verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men, one of the two that we heard about here, who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and he told him, we found the Messiah. John breaks in again, which which means a Christ. Uh, and then he doesn't explain that to us. <laughs> so Christ means the anointed one, the you know, the, the one sent by God. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Kephas, which means Peter. Okay, so here we're given the first two names of the disciples, Andrew and Simon. There's a third guy in this group uh, that he's unnamed. So many people think that this unnamed disciple that's part of this narrative is actually John the author, is, is his part in this, which seems reasonable to me. I love the progression of this text. Two guys set out to commit to Jesus. He invites them to learn and discover from him. And, and what's the very next thing that Andrew does? He goes and tells his brother. He, and so according to, to what we're seeing here, adding to our description of what it means to follow Jesus, I think we see that following and discovering Jesus becomes something that is contagious in our lives. There's just something about this life in Christ. It just starts spilling out to the people around us and, and in our lives. And I, before you start going, oh, Rob, are you going to tell us we got to go out and go door to door and impose our views on people? No, please don't worry about that. It's not what I mean at all. But just look at this story. And look at how it unfolds in this story. I mean, those are, those are important things. What's not there is almost as important as what is there, especially when you're, when you're gauging it on our modern representation of Christianity. Andrew does not stick his finger in his brother's face saying, Simon, you're going to hell unless you believe in Jesus. 
And no matter how much some people want that to be the gospel, it is not. No, Andrew says, look what we found. We found someone. One seeker telling another seeker that a discovery has been made, or, or more appropriately, that someone ha- has been revealed. And again, John probably compressed this story. The, the other gospels seem to indicate it took a while before the disciples were applying terms of Messiah to Jesus. But still, we look at the overall effect of this. This is an exuberant exclamation. It is not an intimidating confrontation. This is just somebody who can't contain it, can't keep it to himself. Here's what's going on in my life, and it's been so cool, and and it's because of this one that I met. It is not an intimidating, boy, you better watch out, because the Messiah's here, and he's pretty upset. I don't know. I just think we could learn from something like that. And so when Simon has his interest peaked, he goes to check out what his brothers found, and Jesus takes one look at him, and he renames him. And we're supposed to stop and pause on that because there's all sorts of patterns. There's hyperlinks in the framework of the Bible. And one of those patterns is that of being renamed. It marks a new direction in a person's life. It's a threshold that they cross. They were this and now they're this. So Jesus renames Simon as Kephas, which is Aramaic. And and then he also gives us the Greek name Petra or Peter. But to us, that all means it's, it's, it's rocky. It's a rock. It's rocky. And, and so here's the thing, though. At the time that Jesus names him Rocky, he is just a rookie. He, he has just met Jesus. But Jesus sees what he will be, what he will be forming in him. And here I see that following Jesus is going to draw out a positive change in our lives. It's a process. It's something that Jesus is working on in us. He's continually forming in us and drawing these things out. But following Jesus is going to result in us changing. Jesus knew what he wanted to bring out in Peter, which means then that Jesus believed in Peter. (laughs) It didn't matter what anyone else could readily see at the moment. In Peter's life, Jesus knew that Simon was a work in progress, as we all are. And he was going to make him rock solid in this life of God's kingdom. And so that's the thing to keep in mind. Jesus' purpose is to bring out what's best in our lives, to lead us into the fullest potential that we have as human beings created in the image of God. We may balk at the things that we have to go through at times the path that it leads us down but it's all designed to lead us towards a good ending to shape our lives the way god intended our lives to be to show us what real life can be like okay moving on verse 43 the next day jesus decided to go to galilee you mean we weren't in galilee no apparently not we were somewhere else so he found philip and he said to him come and follow me Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. So those guys all grew up together and the same probably went to high school together. Philip went to look for Nathaniel and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. Okay, so Philip goes to his brother. He says, we found the one that Moses has been talking about, the prophets, it's messianic terminology there. And Nate's answer has always been taken as some sort of like 
you know, diss on, on Nazareth. And remember, we've talked to you about, about that before. Nazareth, it's a big city now, but that's only because Jesus lived there uh, in the, in that time. It was virtually unknown. Like, have you ever been to Two Egg, Florida? It's like that. It's, there was, you know, you, you blink and you've missed it. And, and so you could kind of look at it and think, oh, he's, he's making fun of this little town or, or whatever. But there's actually, you know, he's not saying, oh, nothing good could ever come from that dump. There's more, there's more to this statement than just small town rivalry. Every kid who went to Hebrew school knew that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. According to Micah 5.2, you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, the ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come to you, from you on my behalf. So when Nathan says, can anything good come from Nazareth, he's questioning the title Jesus from Nazareth. Because it should be Jesus from Bethlehem if he's actually going to be the Messiah. He's saying Nazareth isn't mentioned anywhere by the prophet. What good part of God's plan is supposed to emerge from that town? Now, we have the benefit of the other gospel accounts, so we know that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem. We've got every December 25th to, you know, remind us of that. But we know that that while he was born in Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth. But the people that, the people that, were encountering Jesus in that time didn't have that. You couldn't Google him. You couldn't, you know, look him up or, you know, check out his Facebook page and his about site or whatever, anything like that. All he heard was Nazareth and that did not line up with the biblical prophecies on how this Messiah mission is going to go down. And that sort of thing ended up being a big problem for a lot of people when it came to Jesus. Jesus just didn't follow a straight line through everyone's expectations. There was a lot of twists, a lot of nuances that weren't readily obvious. And I believe that we learned something from this encounter with Nathaniel about following Jesus. That following Jesus is actually going to require flexibility on our part. And historically, the church has gotten into so much trouble throughout the ages because we're so inflexible about our traditions or, or traditional interpretations of what the Bible says. If there's anything we should be learning from these gospel stories is that God is an unexpected God. He's rarely doing things the way we plan for him to do, even though we make our plans very clear and, and really well organized with charts and everything. He just doesn't seem to conform to them. Yet what he does, when he does what he does, it's wonderful. God fulfilled prophecy. He kept his promises exactly, but not always in a way that people could neatly track or chart out everything he was doing. So following Jesus means that we have to be flexible, willing to change our minds, willing to see things from different angles and not allow ourselves to be petrified into some unmoving religious monument. Jesus is and always was a surprising Messiah. He's the God of the unexpected and we have to learn to roll with that, to be okay with that. Because, you know, Chuck Smith used to say, blessed are the flexible because they won't be broken. And that's exactly right. You be flexible, this thing's not going to tear you up. And we can follow him in all of the surprising twists and turns that this life takes. All right, moving on, verse 47. As they approached, this is Nathaniel and, and the other disciples coming to see Jesus. As they approached... 
Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this. Then he said, I'll tell you the truth. You'll see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. All right, that's where we're going to be stopping today. When Jesus sees Nathaniel, he describes his character back to him. So he knows him. He says, you're a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. In other words, you're honest and you're not easily tricked. And he is probably referencing what Nathaniel said earlier about can any good thing come from Nazareth. He was questioning. He wasn't just going to jump on board with this. But Nathaniel's perplexed. He says, do we, like, do we know each other? Were you at Lenny's Bar Mitzvah? Where did I meet you? And Jesus reveals that he's able to see things that he shouldn't be able to see. And obviously he had some vision or insight about where Nathaniel had been. Something that was convincing enough for Nate that he immediately jumps on the Nazareth bandwagon. So he's just like, yep, that's good enough for me. Yep, you're Jesus Messiah from Nazareth. That'll work. And Jesus is amused by this. I love this whole interplay here. Sort of like saying, you're, you're swayed by that? <laughs> you're easily amused, aren't you? There's, you're going to see way more than that. You haven't seen anything yet. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 51. A statement that still just gives me goosebumps as I'm reading it. You'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, on him. And it's an odd saying. It's, you know, what an unusual thing to say uh, in this interchange. And yet it is rife with meaning. It's a hyperlink back to Genesis 28 in the story of, of Jacob. Uh, he was this guy who, who tricked his brother into giving up his birthright. He's part of the patriarch, uh, patriarchs of Israel. He tricked his brother into giving up his firstborn birthright and passed himself off as his brother and he received his father's blessing. And, you know, you probably know the story, but his brother's really upset about the whole thing. So he's going to kill him. Uh, he's understandably uh, angry. And so Jacob has to run for his life. And while he's on the run, he's out in the wilderness and he laid down his head to sleep with a stone under his head. And that night he had a dream where he saw a stairway coming out of heaven and the angels of God were going up and down on it. And as he saw this, God spoke a covenant promise with him, reinforcing what God had promised to Abraham, that, that he was going to set these things right through this, this family. And so Jacob called the place Bethel, which means the house of God. Because he understood the concept that God's house is, is a place where heaven and earth have intersected somehow. It was a place where God's activity overlapped the earthly realm. And that was also the idea that was related to the temple when it was built. It was a place of God's manifest presence on this earth. So what Jesus is saying to his new followers is that everything that Jacob's ladder and the temple were forecasting were now coming true in Christ. He becomes the place where heaven and earth intersect, they overlap, where we see God's activities happening, where God's will is done on earth like it's done in heaven. When we see Jesus healing and loving and affirming and protecting, we see God's purposes happening in this world like he intends for it, like heaven wills for it to be. So what that means to us is that to follow Jesus is to par participate in God's activity that's going on in this earth. 
Following Jesus, remember, means setting out to be like him. That's what it was to be a, a rabbi, a, a rabbi's disciple, to be like this person. And, and so we're going to, you know, we, we see what he's doing and then we do the same. We want to do that as well. So if we want to cooperate with the incoming kingdom of God, we're going to do so by doing what Jesus did. We're going to do good for people. We're going to be protective of those who are marginalized. We're going to remember the poor. We're going to speak the truth in love, even when it's not popular, even within the religious spheres. If it's not popular, we'll speak it. And this is huge. This gets at the heart of why we live the way we do, why our lives do change when we come into this relationship of following Jesus. Because when we show kindness to someone who's hurting, when we pray for those who are heartbroken, when we love those who seem unlovely, when we forgive those who hurt us, when we provide help to those who can't help themselves, we put our hands out to do good. We're doing what Jesus does. And the angels of God are ascending and descending in that place, in that moment. Imagine that just for a moment. Imagine it. If we could actually recognize and see what's happening beyond our own senses in those moments when we care for those in need, when we love those who need to be loved, if we could see it, oh, it might change our motives a little bit. Might even change our reaction to the moment. Eh, I gotta go help them in person. Whoa, look at those angels. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. But we have his word on it. We heard him say it. This is where he's at work. This is what he's doing. He meets us there in those moments. Following Jesus is more than just liking somebody's Facebook page. Following Jesus is committing our lives to his purposes. It's striving to be like him. We don't do it well, but that's our purpose, to be like him. Following Jesus, it's a process. It's an adventure of discovery, and we've got to be flexible as we go. But as we go, it will change us. It will rearrange our priorities. It will give us new eyes to see not only ourselves, but this world in which we live from a different perspective. So let's follow him. Let's follow him and see where this leads. Let's follow him and see how the angels ascend and descend when we put our hands out to do good. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for the word that you give us. And will we ever come to an end of thanking you for Jesus? I don't think we will. But we thank you for him. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that you've given our lives meaning and purpose. No matter what difficulties we face, Lord God, through all of that, we also know there's an end game that is good, a good ending that awaits us all as we trust and believe in you. And so, Father, rearrange our hearts, even as we're here today. We take time to worship. We recognize that you're moving around the, the country in different ways and in different means. But, Father, I just pray that you, in your way, will work in our lives, in our hearts, in ways that are meaningful to us, that will lead us into this enlarged life of living for you.